An audio drama is a dramatized, purely acoustic performance. It is often in the form of radio plays, which are plays that have been adapted for audio. These plays generally feature sound effects, music, and actors. An audio drama shouldn't be confused with an audio book, which is the reading of a story for the medium of audio. These can, sometimes, include music and sound effects, too. Audio drama, specifically that of the late 1920s and 1930s, are what inspired me to create Retrospection Radio. Audio drama is still quite popular today, with some more famous audio drama podcasts including Wolf 359, The Magnus Archives, and Welcome to Night Vale. We, like the other audio dramas I just listed, have gained inspiration from that time period. But audio drama was actually around long before its rise. Hello, I'm your host, Noah Martin. I'm the creative mind behind Retrospection, and today we'll be discussing the early history of audio drama, leading to the rise in popularity in the 1920s. But before we get into it, I wanted to let you know that we've changed hosts from Podbean to Dystopia. At Dystopia, you can find our merch shop, music featured both in and out of the audio drama, and more. You can listen to previous episodes, watch short films, or hire us for your own podcast at www.retrospectionradio.com. Alright, that's enough. Let's get into the episode. Our story begins in ancient Roman times. Not really because they had radio, but because the first concepts of a dramatized audio play were staged. During the times of the Roman Empire, a playwright named Seneca wrote a series of plays performed by readers as sound plays, not stage plays. Nowadays, this is still done and is known as a reader's theater. This core concept of actors reading from a script is what would eventually become radio dramas, with a little bit more technology involved. Flash forward a couple centuries, and we're in the 1880s. A French engineer named Clement Adder filed for a patent in 1881. It's for an invention known as the theatrophone. This was crafted by Adder and quickly became widespread across France. This device was crafted to allow the broadcasting of concerts or plays. 80 telephone transmitters were placed across the front of the stage and they picked up binaural stereophonic sound. That means that this is the first invention to use a two-channel audio system. People within the buildings of the performances and across certain areas of Paris were able to listen to performances live through two headphones. Essentially, this system was like a tin can on a string connected to multiple other tin cans. The sound wasn't the greatest, but you could hear performances live. King Louis of Portugal even used the system when he couldn't attend the opera in person. Another famous person to use the system was Victor Hugo, author of Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Within the decade, Belgium, Lisbon, and Sweden had their own theatrophone systems. This system became more popular, and soon the everyday person could use it. 
I'd like to point out the way that technology proceeds in history. New inventions are often very exclusive, only used by the wealthy or aristocratic elite. Slowly, the invention makes its way into normal society. Think of any modern form of media, television, radio, computers. All of them had slow starts, but soon became widely available. In fact, you're probably listening to this podcast through a highly powerful mini-computer known as a smartphone. Anyways, in 1890, the Theatrophone became more widely available. The Theatrophone Company was founded and quickly saw business from wealthy people, hotels, cafes, clubs, and other locations with large gatherings of people. The Theatrophone featured its normal performances of operas and plays, but soon started offering five-minute news programs throughout the course of the day. Can you see where this is going? The Theatrophone is evolving aspects that would later become popular in radio and podcasts after that. I must clarify, though, that the Theatrophone was not radio. Radio uses waves and frequencies to broadcast audio. The Theatrophone, as I said earlier, was like a tin can on a string. Eventually, the Theatrophone was displaced by radio. The final Theatrophone broadcast was held in 1932, during the golden age of radio, though its popularity started to decline in the 1910s. Though the Theatrophone declined, the ideas of broadcasting news and performances will live on, eventually becoming a staple of the average American's life. In the late 1910s and fairly early 1920s, America began to experiment with the radio. Radio is a form of communication which uses electromagnetic waves of frequency, known as radio waves, with ranges between 30 Hz and 300 GHz. They are generated through a transmitter connected to an antenna, which radiates waves until they are received by another antenna called the receiver. To this day, radio is still used. When you listen to music in your car, or at least music not connected to your phone, it is likely coming from a radio station. Heinrich Hertz was a German physicist that discovered radio waves in 1886 during the height of the Theatrophone's popularity. By 1900, the radio was commercially used around the world. Though it would take some time to become popular. As I said earlier, the wealthy elite were able to afford radios at first, but since radio waves could only travel so far, towers were only built in highly populated regions. After all, why build a radio tower in the countryside when the only person who could receive the radio waves was Farmer Joe, if Farmer Joe forked over a hefty amount to build a receiver in the first place? During the next few decades, specifically from the 1910s to the 1920s, radio was quickly developed and became more streamlined. Here's a fun fact. The RMS Titanic sank in 1912. At that point in time, radio broadcasting was like cable, or a more relevant comparison would be streaming services. Certain companies owned certain frequencies, and thus the people who bought from those companies would receive equipment tuned to certain frequencies. 
The Titanic actually had a ship relatively close to it, but since the ship used a different radio company, they were on a different frequency, and thus they were unable to pick up the Titanic's call for help. The disaster of the Titanic led to the streamlining of radio. Companies could no longer lock other companies from their frequencies, so that a disaster as large as the Titanic couldn't happen again. That's a weird historical fact, right? Many, many more lives could have easily been saved if they had access to the same frequencies. I learned that while studying media law in college. So now it's the 1920s. Radio has been streamlined where if you're listening to radio, then you get all the channels. Of course, this led to some annoyance from the companies that had previously had a monopoly on the airwaves, but it led to safer communication and travel. So, thanks, Titanic. Let's keep in mind that radio hadn't entirely become mainstream. It was becoming easily accessible, similar to the way that the theatrophone was in pubs and other commonplace buildings, but it was still expensive to build towers and receivers. Also, radio didn't become a household device until 1934 when, reportedly, up to 60% of American households had a radio. And that trend started in the late 1920s. 1921, certain radio hosts were trying different things in the hopes of bringing in new listeners. They were trying sketch shows, news broadcasts, and even some musical numbers from popular Broadway shows. By September of 1922, the first plays were broadcast over radio waves. A New York station, WGY, began airing weekly broadcasts of full-length stage plays. They used music, sound effects, and acting troupe to perform. They became known as WGY players and are historically considered among the first radio dramatists. Soon, others followed suit. Cincinnati, Ohio's own WLW began broadcasting one-act plays just a few months later. By 1923, original pieces written by the WLW crew were being performed. The end of the year saw both WIW and WGY hosting a contest for independent scriptwriters. They had stumbled across the future of entertainment, and it was about to get big. The New York Times began listing time slots of radio dramas in their newspaper. The radio dramas consisted of one X, excerpts from plays, complete plays, or operettas. Most of these plays were remotely broadcast from local theaters or opera houses. The historical records of early radio drama, however, are quite incomplete. WLW's Fred Smith is one of the most influential early audio dramatists, but not a lot of records were kept on him. He created a series called The March of Time, which was in association with Time magazine. It was considered the first radio newsreel and became wildly popular. By 1931, it was airing on CBS radio on Friday evenings, but Unfortunately, Fred's history becomes a bit more jumbled after that. 
The 30s are documented well, but not the 20s. Some other notable names from the 20s were Freeman Gosden, a radio actor from Amos and Andes, and Charles Coral, a comedian and actor also well known for his work in Amos and Andes. Now, since I'm mentioning some of the unsung heroes of radio, I'd also like to mention some women who helped run acting troops, such as Helen Schuster Martin and Wilda Wilson Church. Books about these people and their accomplishments are rare, so rare that I couldn't find Wikipedia pages for half of them, and scouring the internet brought up few articles. I'm going to talk about a few of the early performances. Now, we've already discussed Orson Welles and his broadcast, The War of the Worlds. It caused mass panic when people tuned in and thought it was real. If you haven't listened to that episode, go to www.retrospectionradio.com. Shameless plug. So, roughly a decade before the War of the Worlds, the French had the same idea. I'm not even going to try and pronounce this French name, but the name of the show in English is called Seaquake. It presents a realistic account of a sinking ship. Very Titanic. People dying, screaming, drowning. Then, the end reveals that the characters were actually actors rehearsing for the broadcast. It was translated and broadcast to Germany and England within a year. Ironically, it was banned from its original country, France, until 1937 because the government feared the SOS messages would be taken seriously by listeners. Companies began to see the entertainment investment of the radio market, and soon, the BBC, NBC, and CBS, that's a lot of B's and C's, were sponsoring playhouses and hiring actors to perform on the radio waves. Soon the days of small playhouses performing independent of media giants would be gone. Like Orson Welles' Mercury Radio Theater on the Air becoming the Campbell Playhouse. Yes, they were sponsored by the soup people. But, perhaps for the first time in history, even though media giants stepped in, most creatives in the field still had a strong say in what was published over the airwaves. It would be in this time, the 1930s, that the golden age of radio would begin. Thank you for listening to Retrospection Radio Theater. I am your ever-present host, Noah Martin. Today, you've heard the early history of radio drama before the Golden Age. Broadcasts are released weekly on Thursdays at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you've enjoyed it. If you like Retrospection Radio and the content we provide, please go to our website at www.retrospectionradio.com and watch our short films or listen to music. You'll also be able to hire us to edit your own podcast at the same website. Finally, we've switched hosts from Podbean to Dystopia. Please consider going to Dystopia and purchasing our album or any retrospection-related merch, such as t-shirts, hats, bags, and more. I have been your host, Noah Martin. Join us next week as we continue our journey through history in the golden age of radio drama. Thank you.